The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. This is Thursday, June 7th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links from my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. There are spies lurking outside the White House. A new study found signs of surveillance devices near the White House and other sensitive government buildings in Washington. Independent researchers found suspicious cell phone signals that seem to confirm what they've suspected for years, that Russia and or China are working to get our most closely guarded national secrets. In one drive around D.C., one researcher detected probing signals twice outside the FBI building and once even outside the Federal Trade Commission. In just two days of driving around the nation's capital using special equipment, this researcher picked up these signals 18 times. Outside the Senate, the Pentagon, and D.C.'s Embassy Row. These spies, whoever they are, use devices that trick nearby cell phones into thinking they're on a Verizon or AT&T signal, when really, they're on the spies' equipment instead. The use of such equipment, of course, is illegal and a point of concern at the FCC. There's also a global system called SS7 that's been used to spy on Americans through their cell phones. The spies could be from any country. The spies could be from several countries. While we angrily argue among ourselves here in the U.S. about politics and Trump, things are going pretty well for Russia. In case you hadn't heard, Russia's launched a new online propaganda campaign to try to influence U.S. politics going into the 2018 election that will either decide to keep this country on its current course or to impeach this president. A new website called usarelay.com has been online for three weeks now, and the FBI says it appears to be operated by the same Russians who led the 2016 attack on the U.S. The U.S. is again, or still, under attack by Russia, with very little in terms of new or special efforts by the U.S. to keep that from continuing. This new Russian propaganda website is already urging Americans to rally in front of the White House on June 14th to honor Trump on his birthday, which is also Flag Day. The goal of the website appears to be to continue to make Americans angrily argue among themselves using the topics of immigration, gun control, and police brutality. It's another Russian troll farm worming its way into the U.S. The people behind this website work in the same building as the Russian agency that was recently indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller for its interference in the 2016 vote. USA Really has already been banned from Facebook, but it's posting nine articles a day on Twitter. One article told why Louisiana should secede from the Union, Another said the U.S. is preparing for World War III. The one about new bloodshed in Wisconsin with thousands of victims, in quotes, turned out to be about an increase in mosquitoes. Another article warned Floridians about rabid squirrels. And the grammar and the syntax are clearly the product of foreigners who are not fluent in English. About that Trump birthday rally, it read, We invite all Americans who cares about the country to come celebrate this. Come up to the White House on June 14th, it read, to congratulate America. The Russians know the U.S. can outgun them in both conventional and nuclear wars, so the Russians are attacking the U.S. from within and from without and on a different battlefield. Vladimir Putin is delighted to perhaps finally being able to achieve his goal of weakening the coalition of U.S. allies known as NATO. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization is about to have its annual summit, and our fellow members are, for the first time, truly concerned about what the U.S. will and won't do. Trump's erratic foreign policy has mostly run against the wishes of Europe, and the erratic part makes the U.S. much less reliable. Quoting the head of the Atlantic Council, the Russians have sought for years ways to split the alliance to show the U.S. as an untrustworthy ally. Russia has stepped up its military action in Ukraine, hoping to create a split between Ukraine's neighboring countries and the U.S., which has tried to avoid confronting the Russians that near to Russia's border. But Trump's tariffs against those European nations have done more than anything the Russians have done to carve a divide between the U.S. and its best friends in the world at NATO. In the campaign, Trump even threatened to pull out of NATO. As president, he's pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran nuclear deal, and he's threatened multiple trade agreements. America's best friends are beginning to think the U.S. is not a good friend for them. 
the U.S. is increasingly isolated and alone. This powerful coalition of allies that will stand against Russia is on shaky ground, and Americans continue to angrily argue among themselves while things are going pretty well for Russia. No one is above the law, but to hear Trump and his legal team tell it, a president has powers that make him mostly untouchable. In a January letter to special counsel Robert Mueller, Trump's lawyers claimed that a president doesn't have to answer questions and doesn't have to answer a subpoena. Executive privilege, they claimed in their 22-page letter to Mueller. They also claimed it's not legally possible for a president to commit obstruction of justice because he is the nation's top law enforcement officer, the top pursuer of justice. Trump's lawyers also argued that a president can shut down any investigation at any time for any reason because he is the head of every investigation. And that a president has the power to pardon people. The letter from Trump's lawyers gave Mueller an understanding of what would happen were he to subpoena this president. Trump's legal team would challenge that subpoena in court, and a battle royale would begin between different parts of the executive branch, the president and the White House, versus his own Justice Department, the same battle Trump is already waging in public. The letter to Mueller was sent not long after Mueller warned Trump's legal team that a subpoena might be coming and that he wanted to ask the president questions about apparent obstruction of justice. The letter was seen as an attempt by Trump's lawyers to keep Mueller from engaging in that battle, calling Mueller's bluff on whether he's ready to carve new legal ground with that grand jury subpoena. It doesn't seem likely, but Trump's lawyers are preparing for it just in case. Except for the interview with Trump and the trickle of new examples, it's expected that Mueller has otherwise wrapped up his case against the president for obstruction of justice. As for the examples of possible obstruction that still trickle in, one came in that letter from Trump's lawyers to Mueller. His lawyers wanted to make clear that Trump did not lie in his statement about why Don Jr. met with Russians in Trump Tower. On board Air Force One, Trump and others crafted a statement claiming the Don Jr. meeting was about adoptions, in spite of published emails that showed Don Jr. was eager for Russian dirt on Hillary. In this letter, Trump's lawyers called Trump's statement accurate. But in their claim, the lawyers were admitting for the first time that Trump had personally dictated that statement about the reason Don Jr. met with Russians in Trump Tower during the campaign, which is false, regardless of the claims by Trump's lawyers. It's more evidence of an effort to obstruct justice, and now Trump's lawyers may be facing that accusation as well. And it was on Air Force One during the dictating of that untrue statement that a spokesman for the Trump legal team resigned after hearing Trump tell communications director Hope Hicks that Don Jr.'s emails, quote, will never get out. But they did get out, showing that Don Jr. was so eager for Russian dirt on Clinton, he wrote, I love it. And by crafting a false statement about the meeting being about adoptions, Trump was engaging in a cover-up, or at least hoping for one, as a way to obstruct justice. And then came the rumblings about pardons. The rumbling started again last Thursday when Trump pardoned a race-baiting conservative commentator by the name of Dinesh D'Souza. Trump said D'Souza had been treated very unfairly by the government, even though D'Souza had pleaded guilty to violating campaign finance laws and lying about it. Trump had previously pardoned Arizona's renegade ex-sheriff Joe Arpaio. When Trump pardons conservative extremists, he sends a message to other conservative extremists. This time, though, the message was directed at law enforcement to undercut their work. But mostly, it's an apparent message to former lawyer Michael Cohen and former campaign manager Paul Manafort, both of whom are under tremendous pressure from the feds to flip on Trump. Trump's message could be, I can pardon you if you're good to me. Trump later told reporters he was considering pardoning TV's Martha Stewart and about letting former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich out of prison. Trump says they, too, have been treated unfairly by the government. He knows them both from TV's Apprentice series because he likes them and because he can. And all this pardon talk is another reminder of Trump's awareness of his power to grant pardons. He believes even to himself. Trump's TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, wasn't on board when Trump's legal team wrote that letter, but he's completely on board with the position in that letter. In fact, Giuliani said Sunday the president probably has the power to pardon himself if he's found guilty of a federal crime. Giuliani says a self-pardon is not something Trump's planning to do, 
but that he probably could constitutionally. Trump has reportedly asked his lawyers if he can pardon himself, showing interest in the idea. Lawyers all around, including Giuliani, believe that to do so would unquestionably lead to impeachment. But former federal prosecutor Preet Bharara says, when he says the president is not contemplating something, I have no faith in that whatsoever. And it should be pointed out that pardons can be issued preemptively. A person doesn't have to be convicted to get a pardon. The person doesn't even have to be charged with a crime to be pardoned. A pardon, whenever it's issued, erases the consequences of breaking a law or laws. Giuliani said Trump wouldn't likely pardon himself if he's found guilty, but didn't mention what Trump might do before possibly getting to that point or before charges are even filed. But when it comes to self-pardoning, a Justice Department memo from just before President Nixon's resignation says a president cannot pardon himself because no one can be their own jury. It's a clear legal conflict of interest. On the other hand, a president's right to self-pardon from federal crimes has never been tested in court, and that's a debate unto itself. And his pardons only apply to federal crimes, not state crimes. What Trump could do under the 25th Amendment is declare himself temporarily disabled, appoint Vice President Mike Pence as acting president, and then Pence could pardon Trump. That could happen, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. On another matter, Giuliani says he's recommending that Trump not testify for Mueller's grand jury because, quote, our recollection keeps changing. But on Sunday, the president's TV lawyer was saying a president can probably pardon himself. And then came Monday when Trump weighed in. I have the absolute right to pardon myself, he declared, adding, but why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? Trump also used that tweet to repeat his falsehood that the Russia probe is being conducted by 13 angry and conflicted Democrats. Again, it's 18, not 13, and they are mostly Republicans. Monday was Trump's 500th day in office. In a separate tweet that morning, Trump called the appointment of the special counsel totally unconstitutional. Unconstitutional was in all caps. By playing his Trump cards now, executive privilege and pardons, Donald Trump has now shown us all of his cards. Playing the last big cards he has, Trump's indicated he's running out of options. The president of the United States is desperate. Here's why. The feds are closing in hard and fast on the president's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. A court has ordered Cohen to produce by Monday the names of his clients, proof of those relationships, and the nature of those relationships. Cohen's lawyers had claimed attorney-client privilege on the tens of thousands of documents the feds seized in their raids on Cohen's papers and electronics. Cohen's lawyers persuaded the federal court in the Southern District of New York to withhold the seized documents from the prosecutors until a disinterested third party, a special master, could pour over them to decide which documents the feds could and could not see based on the concept of attorney-client privilege. They were documents from Cohen's home, his hotel room, office, safe deposit box, and shredder. The FBI had seized eight boxes of papers, well over 639 documents, some of them, of course, on multiple pages. Now, of those 639 items, the court-appointed special master found only 14 that she considered privileged. 14 out of 639. From Cohen's two cell phones and his iPad, the special master found nearly 300,000 items, only 148 of which were covered by attorney-client privilege along with seven items deemed highly personal. On Cohen's devices, just 150 documents out of 300,000 are covered by privilege, far shy of the, quote, thousands if not millions of privileged documents Cohen's lawyers had claimed. And while the president's personal lawyer is forced to turn over documents Trump also calls privileged, the president's former campaign manager appears to be headed for jail. The Mueller team of lawyers wants Paul Manafort's house arrest revoked and to instead keep him in a jail cell until his trial. Investigators say Manafort violated the terms of that home confinement by witness tampering through phone calls and the chat software known as WhatsApp. They told the judge of one witness who'd reported that Manafort tried to get them to lie in his trial to commit the crime of perjury. Manafort's facing federal felony charges of tax fraud, conspiracy, and for not registering as an agent for a foreign government. He may now be facing witness tampering charges as well. 
there'll be a hearing on whether Manafort goes to jail. That hearing's on the 15th, a week from tomorrow. As with Cohen, Manafort is under great pressure to flip for the prosecution. Flynn did it. Manafort's business partner did it. Manafort's own ex-brother-in-law did it, being a former business partner of Paul. In those things alone, the fact that Manafort's business partners have agreed to testify for the prosecution, that alone creates incredible pressure on Manafort to make the switch. Cohen has a day in court Monday, followed by Manafort's jail or bail hearing on Friday. None of this is good for Trump, and it's terrible for Cohen and Manafort. The pressure cooker therein is white hot. Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort, both facing great legal jeopardy, have now seen pardons dangled in front of them as a way out of not having to go to prison. But the president's possible pardons, which could ultimately include members of his staff and family, wouldn't necessarily protect them or him. Because Trump likely won't pardon the 13 Russians Mueller has charged. Anyone who worked with those Russians can then be named as co-conspirators in that case. Even if Trump carries out his threat to disband the Mueller probe, the case against those indicted Russians continues and anyone associated with them can still face charges. And Trump himself could be charged with, wait for it, obstruction of justice for using his pardons to cover up possible crimes and impede a federal investigation instead of out of mercy or the good of the country as the law requires. And while pardons cannot be reversed, they can be investigated. And now Ivanka's name has come up. BuzzFeed reports that the first daughter put Michael Cohen in touch with a Russian athlete who had offered to introduce her dad to Vladimir Putin to help Trump achieve his dream of building a Trump Tower in Moscow. BuzzFeed got hold of four emails that are also in the hands of its sources and also in the hands of Robert Mueller's investigators. The special prosecutor is now looking at the involvement of the president's daughter, in addition to his daughter's husband, Jared Kushner, and his own son, Don Jr., all of whom had contact with Russians, along with Trump's fixer, his longtime personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. Mr. Trump may be feeling some pressure, too. And in spite of all that's been said about the FBI and the Justice Department and the Mueller probe, House Speaker Paul Ryan now says he believes law enforcement was just doing its job when it used an informant to make contact with three members of Trump's campaign, some of whom had communicated with Russians. Ryan says he doesn't believe Trump's claim about a spy being planted inside his campaign. And Ryan is warning Trump against a self-pardon, saying, no one is above the law. Another key witness in the obstruction of justice probe is Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and his is an interesting story. The importance of Sessions became clear after the New York Times bombshell last week in which we learned of a dinner meeting in March of last year in which Trump berated Sessions and told him he should unrecuse himself from the Russia investigation. Sessions refused Trump's demand, and Trump's request made Sessions a key witness in Mueller's obstruction investigation. It also made for another piece of evidence in that obstruction case. We had not heard about this dinner meeting prior to this past week. Mueller had heard about it, of course. Mueller has eight questions already specifically involving Jeff Sessions that he would like to ask of Donald Trump. Rudy Giuliani, meanwhile, is telling Mueller the president should not be forced to answer any questions about his conversations with senior officials and that a president has a right to make such a request, executive privilege. The day after the Times story, Trump tweeted about wishing he had picked some lawyer other than Sessions to run the Justice Department. Without Sessions' recusal, Rod Rosenstein would have never headed the Russia investigation, which means Rosenstein would have never appointed a special counsel. The recusal was the end of the Trump-Sessions friendship. Trump had tried to keep Sessions from recusing and has lambasted him publicly and privately about it since, all of which has been noted by Robert Mueller. Trump wants Sessions to quit so he can be replaced with someone that Trump's described to his aides as being more loyal. So why doesn't Trump just fire Jeff Sessions? Because Trump voters and the Republicans in Congress won't stand for it. As a former senator who was well-liked, at least by his Republican colleagues, this Congress has Jeff Sessions back. 
And Trump voters wouldn't like it at all, getting rid of the guy who's doing the most to stop immigration. As much as Trump wants to fire Jeff Sessions, Trump doesn't have the political power to do it. Congress flat wouldn't allow it. Not going to happen. So all Trump can do is berate, cajole, and harass Sessions until Sessions does what he wants, which is end the Russia investigation. Trump could fire Mueller himself, but top advisors and Republicans in Congress are telling him that's impeachment bait. So Trump is trying to browbeat Sessions into doing what Trump also does not have the political power to do. He wants Sessions to fire Mueller and end the Russia probe. So Tuesday morning, Trump was on the Twitter again. The Russian witch hunt continues, he wrote, all because Jeff Sessions didn't tell me he was going to recuse himself. I would have quickly picked someone else. So much time and money wasted. So many lives ruined. In that tweet... Trump had admitted to obstructing justice or at least a desire to do so. And he'd admitted he doesn't have the power he says he has. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, said the great and powerful Oz. About all this slamming of Sessions, all the talk of ending the investigation, of pardoning himself and others, a former aide to Jeff Sessions says this, Just because you can do something doesn't mean you won't get impeached for doing it. Quoting this former aide, Cameron Smith, you have a president saying, I can do what I want. Well, are you going to do it or not? The answer is no, because he does not have the political power. The frequent public meetings of Jeff Sessions continue. So does the Russia investigation. Oh, there aren't just spies outside the White House. Sometimes they let one in. That was the case when the top Korean spy was invited into the Oval Office because... What could possibly go wrong? Despite a national security ban on his even coming here, Kim Young-chol had arrived as an envoy for North Korea to deliver an oversized envelope containing a letter from Kim Jong-un. Chol, who masterminded the cyber attack on Sony Pictures, wasn't just the first high-ranking North Korean in 18 years to visit the U.S. He was not just invited into the White House. He was invited into the Oval Office just as the Russians had been. Chol and Trump appear to have really hit it off. There are reports Chol pitched Trump on the idea of building a casino in North Korea's tourist zone. After the meeting, Trump announced that the June 12th meeting in Singapore with Kim Jong-un was back on. Outside the White House, Trump told reporters the letter from Kim was, quote, very interesting, very nice, and that they'd probably pay him to see it. Trump chatted with reporters for eight minutes about that letter from Kim, and then he added, quote, that he purposely didn't open the letter, and laughed that he, quote, may be in for a big surprise. Reporters were certainly surprised that the president had lied and then proved he'd lied with his own words inside that eight minutes, which many believe is a new personal best for Trump. Another month, another 250 lies. From the day he was sworn in, the Washington Post fact-checkers have kept a running count of the number of false or misleading claims Trump makes. Lies, so far as most of us are concerned. These fact-checkers keep busy. By June 1st, Trump had been in office 497 days and had uttered 3,251 falsehoods. That puts his average now at more than six and a half a day. That's up a bit from his presidential average of a month ago. Several falsehoods in a single tweet help make that number easily achievable. The 35 he told at one of his campaign rallies this month also helped the average grow. And that's if you count the repeated lies. The fact checkers include false claims that have been repeated in their total count. There are 122 falsehoods by this president that he has repeated three times or more. But the lying has also increased over time. Trump's average was just under five a day during his first hundred days. But he's upped his game as the Russia investigation circles closer. As of June 1st, 265 of Trump's false claims had been about the Russia probe. Trump's lies also appear to be getting bigger and bolder. On the last day of May, Trump tweeted, quote, I never fired James Comey because of Russia, even though that's precisely the reason he gave on that Lester Holt video we've all seen a hundred times, a video shot two days after Comey was fired. Trump supporters have seen that video too. Polls show Trump supporters know he lies. But because they believe he's their guy, they don't care. 
More about the Trump administration's kid snatching at the border, the new ways we've been sold out by Facebook, and the continued screwing of our veterans, along with Bob Seska, after this. More and more, we're asked to pay for something we used to get free, the news. This news, of course, comes to you without a paywall, without corporate ownership. It's just plain free. So please do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon for it, so it's very helpful when you shop through that link for either your home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my link for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. Donald Trump's first national security advisor was Mike Flynn, who, besides breaking the law, believed the southern border of the U.S. was lined with signs that guide radicalized Muslims into this country. Flynn also believed that the Florida State Democratic Party was trying to impose Sharia law in Florida. He had some out-there ideas, Mike Flynn did. So does the new guy. Now, General H.R. McMaster, who served in between Flynn and the new guy, was often considered the adult in the room and refused to be a yes-man for Trump. So he's gone. The new guy is a conspiracy theorist in the style of Mike Flynn. It's Michael Bolton, who has also railed against Muslims. So returning to the National Security Council now are some of the same people that Mike Flynn had installed. The far right is back in charge of American foreign policy. And now Bolton has brought on board what New York Magazine describes as an anti-Muslim wingnut. It's former CIA analyst Fred Flights, Bolton's new chief of staff. Flights had once argued with the CIA over not letting Bolton claim publicly that Cuba was trying to acquire biological weapons. He claimed the Muslim Brotherhood has infiltrated the highest ranks of the U.S. government and that it happened on Obama's watch. These are the new influencers of foreign policy under a president who has his own problems. An update on the children being taken from their mothers along our southern border, including those asking for asylum at our official checkpoints. Hundreds of families have been separated as they enter the country, something that was never done with accompanied children until the Trump administration. And the children are being stuffed into holding facilities, including a now-empty Walmart store in Brownsville, Texas. Children who don't know where their parents are and vice versa are sleeping on floors in many facilities with nothing but foil blankets for comfort. This week, two Democratic senators tried to get tours of these facilities and they were turned away. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley did get a tour of another facility 100 miles away in Texas where he said he saw children between the ages of 5 and 17 being held in cages There are now 11,000 migrant children living in government custody, a growing number of them snatched from their parents to discourage other immigrants from trying to cross the border. And the Trump government is running out of room to store the children who continue to be separated from their parents who've come here to flee the gang violence in their own countries. The U.S. government is now considering putting up the kids at three remote military bases. It's what Jeff Sessions said he would do. But still they come. The number of people arrested at the border for trying to enter the U.S. without papers is up for the third month in a row, despite the fiercest efforts of Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump, despite the kid snatching. U.S. border agents arrested nearly 52,000 people for trying to cross the border in the month of May. Taking children from their parents has not stopped them. The Trump Sessions plan to deliver Trump's campaign promises on immigration isn't working. It's just cruel. Arrests began to taper off during the Bush administration and dropped even more during the Obama years. Contrary to what he'd promised his voter base, the numbers are growing in the Trump era. Over this past week, we learned that Apple, BlackBerry, Microsoft, Samsung, and others have shared their users' personal information with Facebook. In fact, Facebook had data-sharing arrangements with at least five dozen device makers, including Amazon, which makes devices of its own, including Alexa. And we learned that Facebook shared that data without the explicit consent of the users in violation of a decree by the Federal Trade Commission. Facebook had carelessly shared that information also with Cambridge Analytica, a group with ties to Russia that abused its agreement to profile and target users for political purposes on behalf of the Trump campaign. 
Facebook has started winding down these agreements now, but most of them are still in effect. 22 of the five dozen relationships have already been terminated. Apple says it no longer gets Facebook data, but Amazon and Samsung have no comment. BlackBerry says it didn't use any of the data beyond allowing its users to access their own Facebook accounts. Facebook says it knows of no cases other than Cambridge Analytica in which a data partner misused what it calls regulated data. The New York Times, however, found that data from those users was then used to also monitor their social media friends, including friends who had denied Facebook permission to share their information with third parties. And we have since learned that Facebook also has a data-sharing partnership with at least four Chinese companies, including one targeted by U.S. intelligence as a security concern. Google, meanwhile, says it will not keep working on artificial intelligence projects for the Pentagon. It was a nice, fat government contract for Google, but it angered engineers and others within the company to know that they were building weapons of war. The Google AI project for the Pentagon involved interpreting video for drones. Microsoft and Amazon continue their work for the Pentagon without an employee rebellion. Uh, the Pentagon, by the way, is now investigating Dr. Ronnie Jackson, the former White House doctor alleged to have a drinking problem whom Trump had nominated to run the Veterans Administration. The Pentagon is looking into reports of the military doctor drinking on the job and loosely prescribing prescription drugs, all while verbally abusing those who worked for him. Jackson reportedly wrecked a government vehicle while drunk and carried the nickname Candyman because he so freely handed out prescriptions and pills. Trump's Education Secretary Betsy DeVos says the administration's Commission on School Safety will not consider the role of guns in the growing numbers of mass school shootings. So you're studying gun violence, said Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, but not considering the role of guns. We're actually studying school safety, said DeVos, who says the Trump Commission report will be out before the year is. We continue to learn more about the ethics of Trump EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. The latest reveal, telling a staffer to ask if Pruitt's wife could get her very own Chick-fil-A franchise. Pruitt's wife, Marilyn, never got that franchise. She gave up on the idea halfway through filling out the application, just like the other 40,000 people who ask for one of those applications every year. The Pruitts weren't expecting an application. That was the whole point of Pruitt telling his assistant to ask Chick-fil-A President Dan Cathy by phone if his wife could just get a franchise. Pruitt had also approached the head of a big New York nonprofit, which did pay Mrs. Pruitt two grand to make an all-expenses-paid trip to New York for the temporary job of helping to plan the group's annual conference last fall. Pruitt had reportedly complained about the high price of living in D.C. and paying for his home back in Oklahoma, but federal law prohibits a public official from using his or her position or their staff for private gain. So add these to the dozen investigations into Pruitt's management decisions already underway and his penchant for spending a lot of taxpayer money, like the $43,000 phone booth and the 72% raises for his friends in the agency and the millions of dollars on personal security. Scott Pruitt is, in spite of all he's done, still running the Environmental Protection Agency. But with some of his own people now leaving the agency, can Scott Pruitt be far behind? There has still been no apology from either the White House or Kelly Sadler about her comment in a meeting in which she joked about the dying John McCain. The meeting was about a Senate confirmation for Trump CIA nominee Gina Haspel, who was ultimately confirmed. In discussing a key holdout in the vote, McCain... Kelly Sadler said, quote, it doesn't matter, he's dying anyway. That was last month. Normally, if a White House aide had been exposed for saying such a thing, he or she would have been fired simultaneously to that news. But nearly a month later, Sadler was still on the job. This week, a White House spokesman announced that Sadler is now no longer employed in the president's office. The spokesman didn't say why. He didn't say where she went, whether she is unemployed or just looking now at some other government job. Sadler was a high-ranking White House official who was close to Trump personally. It took a month just to move her out of his office area. 
and still no apology. In sports, traditionally the winning Super Bowl team goes to the White House for a presidential face-to-face congratulations, a hearty handshake, and a pose for pictures. Not this year. Oh, sure, the Philadelphia Eagles were the winners. Trump likes winners, and it would make some positive news. The Eagles had been invited to the White House, the visit to take place on Tuesday of this week. But on Monday night, on the night before, Trump revoked the invitation. At first, the White House said he was displeased with the NFL's new policy on take-a-knee protests of racial inequality and that that was the reason the team was disinvited. Not a single Eagles player had protested during the 2017 season. But some of the players and even the team's owners had been critical of Trump and fewer than 10 team members had planned to attend that White House ceremony. Trump was unhappy about the low turnout, another thing he cares very much about. Again, the official White House explanation was not that. Its written statement read, The Eagles are unable to come with their full team. They disagree with the president because he insists they proudly stand for the national anthem. With that statement, Trump had made himself the decider of what constitutes patriotism. If you don't stand for the song, quoting the White House statement, dishonoring the great men and women of our military and the people of our country. Never mind the freedom of speech for which those men and women fought and died. Trump had banished the Eagles players from the White House, a building known as the People's House, because Trump and some of those players have differing views on what is patriotism. With Trump, it's his way or the highway. Trump supporters love that about him. There were midterm primaries in eight states this week. The pundits say Democrats did well in California, which may be the key for Democrats winning back the House this fall. In spite of those observations, more Republicans than Democrats went out to vote on Tuesday in California. So Salon.com's Bob Seska has a comment or two about that. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. With Tuesday's primary elections fully in the can, we can safely declare this week to be the official launch of the 2018 midterm election season. And while I'm not getting complacent, I feel the same as many anti-Trumpers who are eagerly awaiting Election Day with a degree of anticipation that feels not unlike, I don't know, almost falling backwards in my chair by way of Christmas Eve. All told, you could say I'm both excited and overwhelmed with dread over the potential results. Everything hinges on this election, and if Donald Trump's flying monkeys win the day in November, we're in for a drastic transformation in the American system of government, and not in a good way. In the meantime, we're surely going to be treated to a shit show of galactic proportions featuring Russian interference, insufferable cable news punditry, and a series of cuckoo's nest meets red dawn political ads, confounding our sanity and pushing us a little bit closer to the idiocracy future I've been fearing for years now. As we slog through the next five months, there are three specific boilerplate political things that will succeed in profoundly irritating me. These are familiar tropes that need to be killed with fire. Number one, the Democrats don't have a coherent message. This line pops up every election, mostly blurted by cable news people and subsequently viewers who take this horseshit too seriously. It's torn from the biannual script. Nothing to say on television? Well, the Dems don't have a message. It's partly the lack of originality that annoys me most, but also the deep disconnect from reality. Other than repealing Obamacare and impeaching Obama, which aren't messages, by the way, anyone remember the GOP message in 2010? Was that too long ago? Maybe 2014? Or hell, what's the Republican message for this midterm? Turns out there's rarely a national message during a midterm election since, duh, midterm campaigns are run locally and statewide. Therefore, messaging is specific to each of those 435 House elections, 33 Senate elections, and so on. Say nothing of the uber-local messaging in municipal elections and the like. When you hear this line blurted on television and on Twitter, use it as a valid excuse to take that pundit a little less seriously. They're either just vamping or they seriously don't understand midterm campaigns. Number two, the folks don't care about Russia. There seems to be a prevailing wisdom suggesting that campaigning in part to help stop the Russia attack is, I don't know, conspiratorial or unserious. 
Those of you who were following politics in 2002 or 2004 likely recall how the Republicans turned 9-11 into a major campaign issue, attacking any and all Democrats who didn't support the drumbeat for a staggeringly misguided retaliatory war against Iraq. While it's true that 9-11 was vastly more visually harrowing and deadly than the Russian attack, the fact that the Trump administration continues to allow Russia's aggression to proceed unstopped demands the attention of existing and potentially new lawmakers. Our national sovereignty is being assaulted by a foreign government right now, as I say this, and it's going to escalate before it ends. Democrats should be using the attack to annihilate the GOP's increasingly tenuous hold on the national security vote. Anyone who advises Democrats to ignore Russia on the campaign trail should be viewed with massive incredulity. And yes, the folks will care about Russia as soon as national leaders follow, say, Rachel Maddow's extraordinarily successful lead in treating the attack as the national emergency it is. Number three, you can't just be anti-Trump, you have to stand for something. Name one candidate who's exclusively anti-Trump. Good luck, because they don't exist. That said, for heaven's sake, Democrats should absolutely run against Trump as one of several top-shelf priorities. He's a staggeringly unpopular president in polling among Democrats, swing voters, and independents. Why not run against Trump as part of a typical series of platform planks? In 2010, the Republicans ran heavily against the Affordable Care Act, practically a single issue. Turns out, even in those volatile early days of the ACA, it was more popular than Trump is today. The ACA polled at 49% favorable and 40% unfavorable in the week following its final passage by Congress. Trump's RCP polling average hovers at a relatively high point of 43%, six points lower than the ACA in March of 2010. And while the National Party didn't support impeaching Obama as a campaign issue in 2010, Mitch McConnell made sure to let everyone know that he planned on making Obama a one-term president. None of that matters anyway, because we've been stuck with Trump, an existentially dangerous chief executive who, by the way, told Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday that it was Canada that invaded the United States, burning the White House in 1814. Trump's egregious disregard for the rule of law has to be checked while the Republican chicken shits on the Hill are busily napping. There is no greater priority for the midterms than stopping Trump's forward momentum. He's a monkey with a machine gun and someone has to disarm him like now. Running a campaign with such a goal as a priority should be applauded and supported, not scolded into ignoring the orange elephant in the room. If there's one thing we should brace ourselves for beyond Russia, beyond voter ID laws, beyond voter suppression efforts, it's the continued diminishing of the Democratic Party's resilience. Personally, I've been blown away by video of activists storming the halls of Congress and local offices in the name of preserving health care and opposing Trump, not to mention the blue wave that we've seen so far. There's a grassroots liberal movement afoot today that's flying under the radar of the national news media, which tends to limit its focus to what it observes on Twitter and in Beltway cocktail parties. The Democrats have a better-than-average shot at stopping Trump, but the usual suspects on cable are resurrecting their templates for concern-trolling Democrats. We should ignore them with the same vigor as we ignore other false indicators of electoral success and failure, if for no other reason than to remain as sane as possible until November, despite our Herculean degree of stress and anticipation right now, today. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, The Daily Banner, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. Join me with him there every Tuesday. Hurricane season has officially begun. Meanwhile, 11,000 U.S. citizens are still living without electricity eight months after Hurricane Maria toward the end of the last hurricane season. And those 11,000 Americans have no idea when their power is coming back. Even without experience with electricity, neighbors in remote areas have begun working themselves to repair the lines and hook their homes back up to the shaky grid that exists for the rest of Puerto Rico. And now the 2018 storm season has begun. Quoting the mayor of one town, if I told you we were ready, that would be a lie. One issue on which all Americans agree is the need to care for our military veterans, at least in principle. 
with the still somewhat troubled Veterans Administration, debate has centered around whether to fix the VA as most veterans want or, as Republicans prefer, to privatize it to make the VA's work center around getting the vets into private care. Yesterday, the president signed a huge new law that would let far more veterans get medical help outside the Veterans Administration, allowing them to then go to private sector health care providers instead. This law, passed by both parties in both houses of Congress, makes outside medical care legally possible. But the bill doesn't pay for that care. Now, Republicans and Democrats have also written a bill to pay for this sweeping change in veterans' health care. Trump, however, is threatening to veto that bill, the funding bill. The White House isn't talking about it publicly, but has, according to the Washington Post, been working quietly behind the scenes trying to get Republicans to vote against funding the very program he had just approved. In a memo to Republicans, the White House calls the bill irresponsible spending. Spending on veterans, on which the rest of us agree, Republicans and Democrats, and members of both parties in Congress may be of a mind to override a Trump veto of the funding bill. Because if Trump gets his way and this funding bill doesn't pass, $10 billion will be cut from veterans' health care over the next five years. During the campaign, Trump promised to fix the VA and spend more money on veterans. But now that he's signed a trillion-plus dollars overall spending bill, he's having second thoughts about spending on veterans, looking instead at making cuts. But publicly, he signed a bill that makes it appear he's delivering on his campaign promises. For veterans and their families, things get worse, not better. Your health, your money, entertainment news, and stolen monkeys in the third and final segment up next. Hair today, gone tomorrow. Did you know that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35? The hairline recedes, a bald spot appears... And what will that look like in a year from now, or two years? Maybe you'd like to keep the hair you have as long as possible. Pro tip, don't buy the stuff at convenience stores and gas stations. Buy the stuff from medicine and science. Now, thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. 4hims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. 4hims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness. There's no waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and it's all much faster. Just answer a few quick questions, the doctor reviews your answers, and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. This website is amazing. I've looked at it. You're going to love it. Right now, my listeners get a one-month trial of HIMSS for just 5 bucks and save hundreds of dollars on doctor and pharmacy visits. See their website for details. This is a very limited offer, so hit pause right now and go to 4 slash BBNC. I'll spell it. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash BBNC. 4 slash BBNC. The Commonwealth of Virginia this week joined other states that have used the Obamacare law to expand Medicaid. Now, that move alone will provide health care to 400,000 more people of low income. For years, Virginia Republicans kept it from happening. It has happened now because Virginia voters have flipped 15 seats in the state's House of Delegates from red to blue. And Virginia's Democratic governor plans to sign the Medicaid expansion into law. In the crucial election this November... Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah will be voting on using the Obamacare provision that allows states to expand their Medicaid programs to provide health care coverage to more people. Will that pass in a place like Utah? Absolutely. Two-thirds of the state's voters say so in the polls, and Utah is a very Republican state. Counting Virginia, 33 states have now used this Obamacare option. That's more than two-thirds of our 50 states who found something they like very much in Obamacare. The governor of Maine is being sued over his refusal to allow the expansion of Medicaid in his state. Battered and bruised, Obamacare lives. The number of people working health care jobs is up. In spite of the news bombs all around us, the U.S. unemployment rate is now 3.8%. That's a number that hasn't been seen since 1969. Unemployment rate, 3.8%. It's a number no one really ever expected to see again. There are now more job openings in this country than there are applications to fill them. 
for the first time in 20 years. 65,000 newly created jobs just opened up last month. Hundreds of thousands of new jobs were added last month, tens of thousands each in healthcare, retail, construction, and manufacturing. The number of people filing unemployment claims was down by 6 million. Wages, however, are not keeping up with this job growth. Earnings were up last month by just one-tenth of a point. Trump could barely contain his excitement tweeting before the numbers were released, reminding us that he gets to see those numbers first. Looking forward to seeing the employment numbers at 8.30 this morning, he tweeted at 7.21. Presidents don't normally do this kind of thing for precisely the reason Trump had proven. The financial markets were shocked by his sneak preview. It was a chance for investors to buy some stocks just before they would increase in value on the good news that was coming at 8.30. This is why presidents don't telegraph the numbers before they're released. That and the Reagan-era order that the executive branch not comment on that information until at least an hour after it is made public. But Trump was excited. He didn't give the numbers, said White House spokesman Sarah Sanders. On the other hand, the Dow fell more than 250 points last Thursday after Trump announced new tariffs on the imported steel and aluminum used in the aforementioned jobs and paid for by American consumers looking for the best possible price. Stock in Caterpillar dropped by nearly 3%. 29 of the 30 stocks on the Dow index fell that day. The day Trump imposed those 10 and 25% tariffs effective immediately on China and on our closest allies, Canada, the European Union, and Mexico. In this country, the tariffs mean higher prices for everyone, not just on cars and washing machines, but on canned food, wires, paper clips, and countless other things. These America First tariffs are also likely to hurt your 401k as the trade war progresses. Yes, trade war. Welcome to World Trade War One. European countries say they will fight back by slapping tariffs on our exports to them of bourbon, cheese, Harley-Davidson, cranberries, Levi's, and peanut butter. French President Emmanuel Macron warned in five words, economic nationalism leads to war. You'll pay more for frozen pizza, eh? Canada, dear Canada, will now tax the steel, aluminum, coffee, candy, and pizza we sell to them. In other news, we've been selling pizza and candy to the Canadians. But Canada is every bit as politely pissed as the Europeans. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau calls the tariffs insulting and unacceptable. He thought we were closer than that. Canada may be the angriest ally of all, and what Trump said to Trudeau in a May 25th phone call didn't help. When Trudeau asked Trump how he could call the tariffs on Canada a national security issue, Trump replied in a display of ignorance about his own nation's history and added insult to insult. Didn't you guys burn down the White House? The President of the United States asked the Prime Minister of Canada. Editor's note, Canadians did not burn down the White House in the War of 1812, as Trump had apparently meant, nor did they do it at any other time. The British burned down the White House because the colonies were at war with Britain, not with Canada. Never with Canada. Canadians were in Canada at the time, reading about the fire weeks after it happened. Most presidents know that. Most presidents know what a good friend we have or had in Canada. The best neighbor a country could have is pissed at us, but a businessman is now the president. Mexico says it will slap $3 billion in new tariffs on our fruits, cheeses, pork, and some steel to retaliate against Trump's. And then there's China, which has made clear its plans to retaliate through the electronics we buy from them and more. World Trade War One is on. Nebraska Republican Ben Sass reacted to Trump's tariffs by saying, This is dumb. You don't treat allies the way you treat opponents. He continued, We've been down this road before. Protectionism is part of why America had a Great Depression. Make America great again, said Sass, shouldn't mean make America 1929 again. The World Bank warns that Trump's tariffs could trigger another worldwide financial crisis similar to the one we saw in 2008. Trump, by the way, is not the only member of his administration apparently unfamiliar with history. State Department spokeswoman Heather Newert, hired by Trump straight off Fox and Friends, was trying to calm reporters asking about our new ambassador to Germany, who's been angering Germans with his talk of empowering far-right groups.
Newert responded by emphasizing our strong alliance with the German government. And she added, looking back at the history books, tomorrow is the anniversary of the D-Day invasion. She was using the U.S. Allied attack on German soldiers, who were Nazis at the time, to illustrate the great relationship the U.S. has with Germany today. Looking back at the history books is a good idea for all of us, some of us more than others. By this week, the death toll was up to five in the E. coli outbreak that's made hundreds of people sick across more than two-thirds of the country. The death stretched from California to New York and Minnesota and Arkansas. Federal health inspectors are still stumped, unable to find the continuing source of the contamination. After months of searching, they've been unable to locate the farm or the processor or the distributor who's contaminating romaine lettuce beyond this general area of southwestern Arizona near the California border. And we may never know the source. Not this year, at least. The contaminated lettuce is off the shelves, and this year's growing season is now over. Iowa's new wildly conservative abortion law has been put on hold. The heartbeat law, as it's known, is the most restrictive abortion law in the country, banning abortions after six weeks except in cases of rape or incest. It bans all abortions if a fetal heartbeat can be detected, hence its name. And because most women don't even know they're pregnant before six weeks, the law virtually bans abortions altogether. A lawsuit's been filed challenging the law's constitutionality. A judge has placed a temporary injunction on that law until that can be decided. And it will be decided at the state level, meaning it cannot be used as a challenge to Roe v. Wade that might land before the U.S. Supreme Court. Speaking of the high court, it ruled this week in favor of the Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. It was not a ruling about religious rights versus anti-discrimination laws. It was about this particular case in which the baker's religious beliefs were completely disregarded for consideration. Now, right or wrong, the defendant's position was never factored in, making the verdict against him unfair. The Supreme Court's vote was 7-2, to two, with half the liberals joining the conservative majority. But the ruling was nonetheless, at least it felt as though it was a victory for the baker and a defeat for LGBT rights. Each of those sides feel exactly that way. It's also a worry bead for what lies ahead with a conservative court that could become even more so as a liberal and a moderate on the bench consider whether to retire. After noteworthy progress during the Obama years, there have been a few setbacks lately for LGBT rights. In recent weeks, Kansas and Oklahoma have passed laws that let state-licensed child welfare agencies use religious beliefs as a reason for not placing children in LGBT homes. Now there are eight states with laws like that. In Texas, the state Supreme Court has overturned a law that gave benefits to the legal spouses of all city employees including those in same-sex marriages. A few serious setbacks. But at the same time, a new Gallup poll shows that more than two-thirds of Americans now support same-sex marriage, the highest that number has been in 20 years of asking. And LGBT couples are fighting back in lawsuit after lawsuit in those states. The Japanese camera and electronics company Canon says it will stop selling cameras that use film. Canon's run out of the last ones it made eight years ago, a 35-millimeter. Canon says the final shipment of those cameras has just gone out. But Canon says it will continue to answer questions and offer parts and service for a couple more years. There may be a way to bring back the biggest show on television without her. ABC is expected to decide within a week whether to continue the Roseanne show without her, otherwise the same cast with a new title and with Sarah Gilbert's Darlene as the central character. The talks this week between the actors and the other parties involved have been intense. And because of this last-minute mess caused by Roseanne's racist tweet about a former Obama aide, there's no way the spinoff could be ready in time for the new fall season, November at the earliest. Just one thing stands in the way of this rebooted reboot. Roseanne. She owns nearly all the rights to the show. This week, Roseanne tweeted, I am making restitution for the pain I have caused. Is she talking about surrendering her rights to the show so the actors who had lost their jobs would have them again? Or is she talking about something else? Since it's Roseanne, we don't know.
And from our maybe-not-all-stars-or-jerks department, a teenaged girl in Pennsylvania posed with a life-size cutout of actor Danny DeVito, asking him to escort her to the prom at Carlisle High. Allison Cross is a big fan of DeVito and the FX comedy series It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Co-star Rob McElhenney then posted a video of DeVito standing alongside a life-size cutout of Allison on the set of her favorite show. Allison says it was almost as exciting as escorting Danny DeVito to the prom. On one hand, the new Star Wars movie is still number one in the U.S. and Canada, but not in that impressive Star Wars way. In just its second week out, it made a Star Wars embarrassing $29 million. That's a ticket sales drop-off of 65% in the movie's first week out. Deadpool 2, of course, was a strong second at over $23 million. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Porn has gotten more popular, or at least less unpopular. The annual Gallup poll of America's moral judgments shows that 43% of us now believe pornography is morally acceptable. That's up a whopping 7% from last year and the highest level of porn approval we've seen in seven years. Gallup says Democrats have led the way, but that Americans in general have become more liberal in their views on porn. The numbers are also up for birth control, same-sex relationships, and even polygamy. Why the 7% increase in a year? The porn industry may have helped its own credibility, led by Stormy Daniels' legal moves on Donald Trump. Gallup says Americans have just generally become more liberal in their opinions about the behavior of others. Passings and Passages Jerry Maron, an actor who played a member of the Lollipop Guild in the previously referenced Wizard of Oz, has died. He was the last surviving adult munchkin from that 1939 movie. Jerry was one of the Guild members who handed Judy Garland's Dorothy a flower to welcome her to Oz. He appeared in a handful of other movies and a dozen TV shows, including some of the small screens most famous, from The Odd Couple to Seinfeld. A dwarf, Marin lived 98 years. The Munchkins have their own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. We learned this week that fashion designer Kate Spade had taken her own life at the age of 55. Spade was reportedly torn between getting help for her bipolar disorder and preserving her brand, which she was afraid would suffer if word got out she had sought treatment. Spade's husband said she did finally seek treatment for severe depression. Spade's older sister says Kate was fascinated with the way that Robin Williams had ended his life. Spade is survived by a 13-year-old daughter. No swimsuits. Former Fox News anchor and former Miss America Gretchen Carlson is now running things at the Miss America pageant, the first woman ever to run the organization, and she's announced that it will no longer be a pageant, and certainly not about anyone's definition of physical beauty. No more swimsuit competition. No more weight requirements. Judges are not to consider a woman's size or even her choice of clothing in what used to be the evening gown competition. We will no longer judge our candidates on their outward physical appearance, said Carlson, who says the event will be a competition. The show airs live from Atlantic City on September 9th. There are all kinds of competitions. At this year's Oyster Fest in New Orleans, a Virginia man took the prize for eating the most raw oysters in eight minutes. Raw oysters can go down quickly, and Darren Breeden managed to slurp down 480 of them in that eight minutes. Raw oysters, 40 dozen of them. That's a new record. The event was sponsored by New Orleans' Acme Oyster House. If you're thinking oysters, think Acme. A monkey was missing, along with a tortoise and a lemur from a zoo in Ontario. Monday night, someone had cut through the chain-link fence around the zoo and took the animal's valued at over $20,000. The zoo offered a $1,000 reward. Meanwhile, in Florida, and astonishingly unconnected, a man has been arrested for having a monkey and a turtle. Actually, he had a squirrel monkey and three Florida box turtles, along with a couple of redfoot tortoises, and a skink, which is a kind of lizard. But these animals had also been stolen from a zoo Tuesday night from a teaching zoo at a local college near Gainesville. Two other turtles and two gopher tortoises had escaped and are still missing, but they can't have gotten far. 
In Berkshire, England, firefighters worked to rescue a man who'd gotten stuck up in a tree. The man had been trying to recapture his escaped parrot. The man was rescued. The parrot got away. A woman nearby reports that a green parrot had landed briefly on her head. I won't bother you with why the three-legged alligator crossed the road, but I'd like to tell you how. The six-foot gator made it to the other side with the help of Tampa police officer named Wells, who just moved to Florida from Michigan. We get a lot of that. Welcome to Florida, said his fellow officers on Facebook. A Fort Myers, Florida school was on lockdown this week when a young bear was sighted in a nearby apartment complex. Authorities finally captured the baby bear using surefire bait. Waffles and syrup in a cage. I mean, what's a bear supposed to do in that situation? Maud Mack was beset by bees, frustrated, 40 years. She'd hired Houston Pest Control Companies before, but the bees bounced back. And there were so many of them, the guy who mowed her lawn said he just couldn't do it anymore on account of the bees. Finally, she got a city councilwoman involved. The city council member contacted the American Honey Bee Protection Agency for advice. They sent Walt Schumacher. Walt and his boys know how to use smoke to calm the bees before they go in and carefully remove the hive. In Maud's case, the hive was so massive it had to be removed in sections to be reassembled later somewhere else. Quoting Walt, we take them to places where they're wanted. Fruit farms, for instance. And as often happens, Walt and the crew found a lot of honey, which is now selling in Houston area stores with the proceeds going toward saving the bees that pollinate our food supply. A sign for a New Jersey real estate firm that blew away in Hurricane Sandy six years ago has washed up on a beach in Bordeaux, France. This, the company proudly announces, makes it a global real estate firm. And finally, three for the road on our way out this week. Here's why people shouldn't do acid and play Grand Theft Auto. Right in front of police officers in Oregon, Anthony Clark hopped into a Toyota Camry and led the cops on a wild high-speed chase that lasted 40 miles over spikes and through chain-link fences. It was like a scene out of the video game. In fact, that's what Anthony, who had taken LSD, thought. Anthony thought he was in the video game. That's what he told the officers. Friends don't let friends drive tripping. In Guyang, China, a woman was stopped by police and given a warning about creating a road hazard. The woman had been driving a small pink bumper car down a highway as real cars sped past her. She did it to promote her local bumper car attraction. Naturally, police confiscated her little vehicle. And this week's stuff all over the highway story comes to us from Iowa, where an overturned tanker spilled 3,500 gallons of milk on US 34. No one was injured, and no one cried over what had happened. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.